Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on the 14th of November 2017 at approximately 1.30 GMT. So if there have been any significant events which have happened afterwards, we're obviously unable to deal with them. As always, if you want to learn more about the Talking Terror series or anything we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc, and follow us on Twitter at tercuel. Okay, so it's time for today's guest. It's my great pleasure and honour to welcome onto the pod James Forrest uh, of the University of Massachusetts Lowell. James is a professor in the School of Criminology and Justice Studies there. He is also a visiting professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and a senior fellow at the US Joint Special Operations University. He previously served on the faculty of the United States Military Academy between 2001 and 2010, six of those years as Director of Terrorism Studies within the Combating Terrorism Centre at West Point. Dr. Forrest has published 20 books and dozens of journal articles and is co-editor of the international scholarly journal Perspectives on Terrorism. James, thanks so much for being on today's pod. Pleasure being here, John. Good morning. Good morning. So how did you first become involved in this area of research? Uh, it's a, kind of a unique story, I guess. Um, I did my uh, graduate uh, degrees and master's and PhD in the field of education. And uh, when you study in those uh, educational degrees, you, you learn about human development, psychology, you know, learning, organizational behavior, and so forth. And I, I had embarked on a career of going into academic administration. I worked at a small college in New Hampshire for a few years. And then in 2001, I got a job as the assistant dean at West Point. Um, and shortly after, uh, you know, we all know what happened on 9-11 in 2001, and all of a sudden uh, things changed for me in terms of what I was interested in, in studying. Uh, my students, you know, the cadets at West Point, uh, were suddenly talking about this thing called terrorism that I hadn't really looked at before. And so I started looking at that uh, phenomenon of terrorism through the lens of education. You know, how do the terrorists teach each other? How do they learn? How does organizational knowledge you know, and transfer take place in the world of terrorism. Didn't really find too much uh, of research in that area, so I kind of started building up my own research, uh, you know, to answer those questions. Um, and then over time, in 2003, 2004, we launched the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, and I left the dean's office to become the director of terrorism studies there in the CTC. Um, and I served there for, for six years, uh, entered the world of security clearances, doing a lot of uh, fun stuff, um, you know, got to do some interesting things, see some interesting people. And, um, yeah, I, I definitely um, learned a lot as well from a lot of my colleagues there in the CTC about terrorism, people like uh, General Wayne Downing, uh, Russ Howard, John Abizade, uh, Joe Felder, Jared Brockman, Brian Fishman, uh, Don Rasser, Asaf Mogadam, I mean, a bunch of uh, people who, who've made contributions to either the study of or the practice of counterterrorism and terrorism studies. And so that that's kind of the uh, the long and short of it, the, the experience that, that got me into this field. Um, I left the CTC in 2010 to move here to the Boston area to take care of my ailing father-in-law, uh, we've been taking care of him for seven years now. He's been fighting cancer for a long time. He's a good man, uh, you know, learning to operate heavy machines in the armory and then worked his whole life on the docks of the Port of Boston. And a lot of those years, the foreman of the longshoreman. But, you know, he's been fighting cancer for a long time, and there's really nothing more to be done for him. So that fight's going to be over soon. But anyway, that's how I wound up working and living here in the Boston area since 2010. Um, most of my work now involves the uh, UMass Lowell School of Criminology and Justice Studies, um, so now I'm, I'm tacking on a lot more focus on the uh, criminological aspects of terrorism, um, learning from my colleagues here in the school uh, about organized crime networks and uh, a lot of that kind of research as well. So I, I continue to expand um, my understanding of this, but I consider myself more of a student, if you will, of the study of both terrorism and crime these days. And so going back to that, that point around 2001, where you've got this change in direction, what kind of reaction did you get from colleagues and, and family members, I suppose, as well, where you're saying, now my career is going to be concentrating on terrorism, whereas you had this background in education before? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was I was thinking and talking about becoming a college dean or a college provost, even maybe a college president someday. Uh, you know, in the early parts of my career, that was kind of the trajectory I was on. And then I made this huge switch. Um, part of it just was sort of a, a sense of uh, here I can do something uh, that felt meaningful. Uh, and of course, being at a place like West Point, you know, you're surrounded by. Uh, all these uh, very smart, ambitious uh, men and women, uh, young and old, uh, who really are serving the country and want to do great things, and you just kind of want to be part of that, uh, you know, from from what little I can contribute in that environment. And so that was kind of a very motivating aspect to it. Um, and it was a unique opportunity. Uh, I mean, if I had been at any other college or university in the country, uh, I probably wouldn't have had nearly the kinds of opportunities I had to get involved in this field. Uh, but because I was there at the U.S. Military Academy and, uh, you know, getting invited to do all kinds of interesting things as part of that position, um, you know, it was really kind of a, almost like a Forrest Gump kind of experience, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Um, no, it, it's it's a great, great avenue in. Um, and when we talk about this, uh, we when we talk about the study of terrorism, you're often talking about... Uh, the interdisciplinarity of it and how we need to look at it from a variety of disciplines. But education isn't one of those disciplines that gets talked about too much. So how did you find the applicability of your education background to this issue of understanding terrorist engagement and terrorist learning? Well, uh, for the most part, I've, I've been welcomed to this uh, community of scholars who've been studying terrorism for much longer than I have. Um, because in part uh, there's a recognition that terrorism is at its core a human endeavor. You know, we don't see, you know, dolphins terrorizing other dolphins and you know, other species on the planet doing this. It's really kind of something that's unique to humans. And so understanding the, the human dimension of terrorism and what motivates humans to do things uh, and, you know, the, the ways in which they try and circumvent the obstacles that we put up in their way to try and keep them from doing terrorism, um, that's all part of uh, the broader field of terrorism studies. And so, you know, what I could do to contribute in that realm, I think, was, was welcomed by most uh, who were doing it. Yeah, it's, it's, and you can see this in, in your writings that we're going to be talking about here and the writings that you haven't uh, specified uh, to be selected. I'm thinking of the terrorism lectures, uh, that book that you wrote about, of the specific lectures that you give in, in terrorism studies. Also, your edited volumes on uh, terrorist learning as well. You can see that educational background there. But for someone who was coming in with this background in education, you're wanting to educate yourself uh, on what was known already uh, within the terrorism field. What, who were you reading? What were, what were the influential pieces for you? Um, well, one of my uh, first, uh, I guess, ambitious efforts in this um, you know, goal of, of independent learning in the field was to compile a, a bibliography of sorts, you know, what, what uh, scholars have already published. I you know, found hundreds and hundreds, thousands really, of, of uh, books, and articles, reports, uh, all the way back to the 1970s, um, Rand uh, Corporation kind of reports, Brian Jenkins uh, comes to mind immediately, Martha Crenshaw's work, and so forth. Um, but one of the first books that, that I found that was really kind of influential in my understanding of the breadth and the depth of this research was the book Origins of Terrorism by Walter Reich. Um, in that book, you find that there's this um, you know, a, a kind of a, a nice um, combination of thematic research on things like psychology um, and, and also a lot, of, a lot of case studies as well, uh, which I I'll also kind of resonated with. You know, uh, I like the case study approach in, in research in general. And so yeah, I started reading that book and, you know, uh, came across uh, some really top-notch scholars like Ehud Sprinzak, uh, Ted Gurr, David Rappaport, uh, Martha Crenshaw, Albert Bandura, Bandura um, Ariel Marari, you know, people who uh, have been studying various aspects of human behavior as it applies to terrorism and some degree uh, other aspects of political violence as well. Uh, and it really just kind of exposed me to how uh, I can con connect my area of study with uh, what has already been uh, studied previously. Yeah, and <coughs> as I was saying to you before we uh, press record here, you're not the only one who's picked this book. And it's, 
it's proven to be incredibly influential uh, for some of the most influential scholars in, in terrorism studies. Andrew Silk uh, cited at the very beginning uh, in episode one of this this podcast. We've had Rashmi Singh and others who have who've, um, who've cited it as well. Would you still go back to it? Would you recommend your students to go to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely encourage uh, students at, uh, especially in graduate courses that I teach, to uh, you know, try and read uh, some of the older uh, scholarship like this, as well as some of the newer things as well. Yeah. And how did how did they find it? it? Because they would have started their their study of terrorism, uh, their research on terrorism in a post nine eleven world, in a a number of years after nine eleven. Did they find that it it still fits? Do does it does it does it uh, open their minds up to other aspects, or do they feel that it's outdated? Well, it depends on the the, the level of, of students sometimes. I mean, uh, I find that the undergraduate students uh, want uh, more of sort of a superficial, uh, cursory overview of, of terrorism. Uh, and so you might end up uh, talking with them uh, using um, you know, maybe a little lighter, I guess you would call it, literature, uh, you know, resources for those courses. Um, I find the graduate students tend to be more serious and apply themselves to, to reading more materials. Um, so you can you can count on at least more of them at the graduate level actually reading the book mm-hmm. that you assign as opposed to the undergraduate level. Yeah. Uh, and one of the books that is often cited at an undergraduate as well as a graduate level as the core text to go to is Bruce Hoffman's Inside Terrorism, published the same year as, as Reich's Origins of Terrorism. Now, we've seen a, an updated version come out uh, in the past few months, but um, you've cited as well the, the first edition of this, of Bruce's book, Inside Terrorism, as also being influential to you. What did you really gain from, the, from this book? Well, Absolutely. I mean, uh, Bruce Hoffman, uh, I, I actually first met Bruce when he had joined the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point as a senior fellow. And so at that time, he was working on the second edition of Inside Terrorism. Uh, and so yeah, I, I met him and I, I got to know him. And, and here's this highly regarded expert in the field. So I thought, hey, it might be a good idea for me to read his book, you know. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I, I got a copy and I read it. And it's tremendous. The depth of history, the breadth of topics he covers, I mean, all of it. And so later, when I started teaching graduate courses on terrorism and counterterrorism, first at the Fletcher School at Tufts and then also at the UMass Lowell, I adopted Bruce's book as the core required textbook. Uh, and now with this this new third edition that's come out this year, I'm I'm continuing to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean Bruce's work has always been uh, very uh, important. Yeah, and that focus on the history of terrorism the, and the history of counterterrorism as well. It's it's something that we really need to to hold on to because if we don't pay attention to what's happened in the past and learn the lessons of what's happened in the past, uh, we're going to make the same mistakes again and again and. We're not going to um, we're not going to find the ways to really uh, counter this threat as well. Another book that I found very influential for me early in my career was a two-volume report published by the Rand Corporation. Uh, it was put together by a team of scholars led by Brian Jackson. It was called Aptitude for Destruction, uh, and at the time. You know, I've been focusing a lot of my work on the understanding of you know the transfer of knowledge within terrorist networks and between terrorist networks as well. Uh, and so, the first volume of this report looked at various aspects of organizational learning and adaptation and those kinds of things. That really resonated with me from my uh, my background in education. Uh, and then the second volume I found even more fascinating because there's a bunch of case studies, case studies on Am Shinrikyo and on, on Hezbollah and. Uh, you know, IRA. I, I learned a lot from that particular uh, volume as well. Um, those, those, both those volumes. Um, so that was very influential for me. And what, do, what was Jackson talking about, and colleagues talking about when they were talking about adaptation? And what sort of situations were the terrorist groups adapting? Well, uh, it kind of you know varies from case to case, but uh, if you're looking at a, a group like the Provisional Irish Republican Army, for example, uh, yeah, I learned from uh, the case study in Volume Two about how the Provisional IRA provided training to new recruits on weapons. You know, in, in a country where firearms and bullets are a lot less easy to come by than here in the U.S., you know, I read about you know cellars and farmhouses and you know, all kinds of stuff. Very fascinating insight into sort of the, the learning dynamics and organizational behavior within a terrorist group like this. Yeah, and it really draws on um, 
on our organizational uh, understanding from outside of terrorist groups as well that looking at the adaptations of organizations who aren't involved in political violence was really informing um, informing this work and I like the way uh, they did split it up into those two volumes the second volume with the case studies the first which is really putting it for the theoretical understanding it's it's definitely it's definitely something that's that's well worth picking up and it's a short piece it, they're short pieces to 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 get through but they're they're really, really worth reading. They're the pieces that have influenced your career. Um, but we want to focus on, on the pieces of your own, your own research. And you've, as I said in the, um, in the introduction, you've published 20 books and dozens of journal articles. And we're going to focus on, on just three of those here now um, today. The first uh, was, was a... It started off as a special issue um, in terrorism and political violence, but since became edited by Routledge as an edited collection in their book series as well. And it's that book, Intersections of Crime and Terror. Uh, you're now in in um, School of Criminology and Justice Studies at UMass Lowell. Um, so you can see the interaction here between criminology and terrorism studies. And what were you trying to achieve when you were putting this edited volume together? Well, there's been uh, a lot of focus, especially in the last uh, decade or so, on this issue. Some people call it a crime-terror nexus. Um, but uh, as you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, research in this area that kind of addresses at least one of the following categories. There's, there's the category of people, um, you know, criminals like Victor Bout or AQIM later, uh, Bel Mokhtar. I mean, scholars have produced a lot of in-depth case studies that examine the behavior and decision-making of a specific group or a network within the broader landscape of organized crime or terrorism, um, looking for an understanding of, about what, why they do what they do. And that aspect uh, of this nexus problem kind of appeals to me, resonates with me. Uh, the second category is places, you know, contexts that seem to enable or facilitate crime, terror, nexus activities. Um, you know, we have research that looks at political, economic, uh, social, physical geography dimensions, among, among many others. Um, and then there's a third category where uh, folks have studied uh, local, regional, global, global patterns of things that uh, kind of form the crux of nexus uh, activities, for example, trafficking, drugs, weapons, humans, and so forth, um, money laundering, document forgery, kidnapping, extortion. Uh, so that area of research appeals to me. Uh, a fourth category examines the impacts of the nexus, the activities like uh, you know, research looking at victims or the economic and political consequences of this so-called nexus. And then the fifth category, you have the researchers who are looking at responses to the nexus, you know, what, what's being done, who's doing what, uh, who should do what. And so across all five of those categories, I have found uh, some uh, linkage to my previous work in the study of terrorism or human behavior or you know, contexts that seem to enable and facilitate certain kinds of behavior. Um, so, you know, there's all this research that people have done, but that I find that can be done further uh, in all these different categories. Um, so I've done some work um, you know, in each of those categories now, uh, looking at uh, issues of strategic, strategic alliances, um, which are kind of rare among organized crime and terrorist networks. Um, what's more common are the transactional supply chain relationships, uh, tactical alliances, subcontract relationships, all these kinds of areas. Um, you know, there typically aren't formal uh, agreements between groups or networks. Uh, what, we, what we see instead are individual facilitators that are kind of the heart of collaboration between terrorist networks and organized crime networks. Uh, so again, it comes back to that human behavior uh, aspect that I mentioned which was kind of my inroads into the study of terrorism in the first place. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at this, at this crime terror nexus, one of the first things we have to, to decide, and it's the, what we grapple with the whole time in this area of research is, well, how do we differentiate? How do we differentiate between the, a criminal organization and a terrorist organization? Is, is this an important debate, do you feel, to have when we're looking at, at uh, criminals and terrorists uh, and that crime terror nexus? Well, I think the first question, how do you differentiate? Uh, one way to differentiate is just to kind of follow the money. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at a, a, a network, a clandestine network, and you have some insight into the flow of finances, um, monitor the direction of that flow of finances. If, if the money is coming in from various sources and kind of going to a central location 
into somebody's pockets to make somebody rich. That's typically an organized crime kind of network. But if the money's coming into a central location but then going out to operatives um, so that they can carry out terrorist operations, that would indicate more of a terrorist network. So you can differentiate, I think, between the two kinds of networks based on their financial flows. Yeah, and this is a way to, by, by looking at it this way, we're looking outside of the traditional just uh, look at uh, terrorist behavior. You're looking at the expanded universe, at the expanded, um, the expanded world of, of the terrorist as well. Um, and how they viewed that, the money and what, we, what we've seen in relation to state sponsorship as well. You've, you specified in the introductory chapter of this that we've seen a key difference uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, and we're going to get onto those five points that you, you detailed uh, earlier. We're, we'll get onto those in a bit. But what was it about the end of the Cold War that, that saw this change? And what was the change exactly? Well, it seemed like uh, it became less uh, feasible and less viable for uh, certain states to sponsor terrorist networks, to be a you know, direct sponsor uh, or a, you know, facilitator of terrorist activity. Um, it was less less in their best interest, I guess is how they put it. Um, and so a lot of terrorist networks started moving much more into the world of criminal activities in order to fund their operations. Um, we saw Hezbollah get a lot more involved in different kinds of trafficking uh, activities, for example, um, because they needed to get the resources from somewhere. I mean, uh, that's kind of the nature of a clandestine terrorist network is you know, a lot of these operatives don't really have regular full-time jobs and normal lives where they have incomes and that kind of stuff. So they have to get the money from somewhere. Yeah, and could you define for uh, our listeners exactly what the role of facilita the facilitator's role is uh, in, this, in the crime terror nexus and how our understanding of that role of the facilitator can impact on how we should respond to uh, the threats uh, posed by by the crime terror nexus and by by these groups, if that makes sense. Well, to answer the first question, the role of the individual facilitators is um, largely predicated on what we call the trusted handshakes, mm -hmm. where um, one individual has established a trusted relationship with another individual, uh, and those two individuals may be from different kinds of networks. One's from organized crime, one's from terrorism. But because they have some shared experience, so maybe they're, uh, you know, they're in prison together, or they grew up in the same neighborhood together, or you know, they went to school together. You know, so there's some kind of uh, basis upon which they can establish that trusted relationship. Sometimes it could be um, a family relationship, uh, even uh, marital relationships uh, can can form those trusted handshakes. But but those individual relationships uh, kind of form the basis for facilitation that then branches into a network collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of uh, is uh, is temporary um, and a lot of it is very transactional oriented and this this understanding of the trusted relationship of the trusted handshake it really brings in this uh, this background that you had in in relation to human behavior as well and um, but you mentioned as well the the role of the geographic dimensions and this is this is something that's um that really I think you, you, your work really hits on well at um, and makes some key points in relation to. Could you expand on that, the role that geography can play in relation to these, to these, key, these key issues that you're dealing with? Well, geography can play a major role in um, establishing and nurturing uh, the kinds of relationships that uh, can provide for the crime terror nexus. Uh, it's very contextual, though. I mean, it could be a uh, neighborhood in South Lebanon where uh, Hezbollah has a lot more control than the Lebanese government. Um, and so in that kind of environment, you almost have a contested, you know, zone of contested governance in a way. Um, that would differentiate from, say, the mountainous regions of Colombia or Peru. Uh, where you, you have uh, similar kinds of governmental, you know, weak governmental control over that territory, um, and you have a non-state, or many, many cases, multiple non-state actors who are providing some level of governance in place of, or in lieu of, the formal government. So in those, those kinds of uh, political geographic kinds of spaces, 
um, a lot of the times the the relationships are so critical for individuals to actually put food on the table. Yeah, it's it's something that that we need to look at look at even further. Is this role that that geography plays both in relation to understanding um, terrorist involvement and criminal involvement, and how we how we go on to counter it then as well? And that role that background that you had in West Point I feel has really influenced the way that you write about that issue of countering terrorism and it brings us on to your next piece the, it's called Essentials uh, of Counterterrorism uh, which you published with uh, Prager in 2015 and in the opening introduction of this you say that the purpose of this this book was to talk to practitioners uh, it's not to use it's not to be uh, pitched as a academic theoretical book this was to be a practical book which would be able to help educate practitioners on what our understanding of um, terrorism and counterterrorism was why was it that you decided to to pitch it in this way this book well i think um part of the impetus of that was uh some articles i read um several years ago about some Counterterrorism, or so-called counterterrorism training that was being provided to police agencies here in the United States. Um, there was, at one point in time, uh, some individuals who were being uh, brought in to provide this kind of training who uh, were giving this sort of mischaracterization of terrorism in the sense of, I know a terrorist when I see one, and here's what you should look for. Uh, and you know, giving uh, you know, police officers and future police officers uh, almost, um, you know, the, a wrongly headed view of of terrorism as very um, bigoted and uh, very unfortunate, I think. Um, and I, I, you know, my understanding of terrorism uh, at that point was no, it's it's much more complex than that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, underlying human behavioral dimensions. There's uh, you know, individuals who are making choices toward or against terrorism, and those choices are being influenced by an array of contexts and ideas. I mean, you know, as you know, there's so many complexities to the study of terrorism that then inform uh, a contextually appropriate you know, counterterrorism response. And so that's you know, kind of the the uh, initial impetus for wanting to put together a book like this, Essentials of Counterterrorism. Uh, and so I, I pulled together uh, different uh, authors and different scholars to talk about um, some of the challenges of intelligence uh, as it applies to counterterrorism. Um, some case studies are in the book as well. Um, one of the uh, common references I use when I teach about counterterrorism is this uh, framework called the Dimefill Framework, D-I-M-E-F-I-L. It's something I learned when I was uh, working at West Point. It's something that... Uh, you know, my military colleagues taught me. And uh, it kind of represents the seven dimensions of a nation's power. There's diplomacy, intelligence, military, economic, financial, information, and then law enforcement. And all seven of those dimensions of a nation's power can be and need to be applied to combating terrorism effectively. You can't just have a military-centric or a military-exclusive uh, response to terrorism. Uh, nor a law enforcement. Uh, you know, each of these dimensions uh, is necessary but insufficient on its own. Uh, and so uh, yeah, that, that kind of led me into uh, wanting to put together something that would be useful to at least start the, the conversation with practitioners, especially future practitioners. I mean, where I teach now, I teach, we have about uh, 800 undergraduates, 200 master students, and you know, several a dozen doctoral students. And many of them want to go on to work in law enforcement or intelligence agencies or you know whatnot in here in the U.S. And so yeah, here I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, well, you know, they're going to be the next generation of police officers and leaders of law enforcement agencies even. Uh, so in my classes now, I've been using this textbook among other resources uh, as a way to start the conversation with them about the the multiple dimensions and the complexities of countering terrorism effectively. And do you feel that uh, of these these seven elements of the Dimefill framework, do you feel that they're being successfully applied at the moment, or where are their weaknesses? Well, I, I think it uh, varies from year to year, and certainly from presidential administration to presidential administration. Um, 
you can you can kind of look at the history of the last three presidential administrations and you can kind of see where the emphasis has kind of shifted from you know military to more focus on informational aspects addressing that the ideology became something that the bush administration started to embrace around the middle of the second term of the bush administration they started really focusing more heavily on countering the ideology of the Salafi jihadism. Uh, that wasn't necessarily something they considered doing or, or caring about in the first administration uh, of the Bush administration. Um, the President Obama administration uh, certainly put a lot more emphasis on that, also a lot more emphasis on the informational uh, intelligence and law enforcement aspects of counterterrorism. Um, the, the terminology of the war on terrorism that we saw uh, introduced in the Bush administration kind of faded under the Obama administration. So you, you kind of see it's almost like a, uh, an, uh, an equalizer, like a, a stereo equalizer where you have like seven, seven little levers. You can kind of raise each lever up and down as you go along. You see that you know, shifting over time. It's kind of a dynamic process. Um, some of it's political driven, some of it is intelligence driven and so forth, and even personality driven to some degree, uh, but the deployment of resources across all seven dimensions is something that, uh, you know, you look at and assess from year to year. Yeah, and it's a tricky balancing act to be sure that each of them are, are having the influence that they that they can. Um, and within this, uh, you brought together some really fascinating researchers here, and like you've got people like uh, Daniel Byman, Paul J. Smith, J.P. Larson, uh, others such as this, some really influential people uh, in relation to, to, to our study of terrorism and counterterrorism studies. Did you want this specifically uh, focusing on US counterterrorism or it was, it, was it really being pitched at a, at a US um, practitioner audience uh, at the beginning or did you want to, to broaden it out um, wider than that? Well, certainly, uh, I'm, I'm a, I guess I would call myself a comparative uh, scholar by nature. I, I definitely uh, enjoy and draw a, a lot of strength from looking at other countries and their experiences with various phenomena, whether it's terrorism or education or you know, political human development kinds of things. So I, I definitely uh, would prefer an international and comparative approach uh, in, in most anything I do, really. Um, the volume, The Essentials of Counterterrorism, draws a lot from an earlier uh, three-volume book I did called Countering Terrorism and Insurgency in the 21st Century. Uh, there's a lot more international and comparative uh, stuff in that three-volume set, especially the third volume, where there's uh, like 30 different case studies of terrorist uh, groups, terrorist incidents, and so forth. Uh, just kind of give a, a comparative international array of uh, you know, breadth of scholarship in that area of countering terrorism. Um, there's so much that we can learn here in the U.S. from the experiences of other countries, whether it's the U.K., uh, Northern Ireland experience, the Spain, uh, France, uh, obviously Israel, Turkey, Germany. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so um, I think the, the deeper that uh, a practitioner in the U.S. or even a policymaker gets into the study of, of terrorism, um, naturally they must look out beyond U.S. borders to learn a lot of stuff. And we, we had a lot of terrorism here in the 1970s, uh, and to some degree the 1980s as well here in the U.S. We had about 1,300 terrorist incidents all throughout the 1970s. Uh, but if you talk to a policymaker today here in the U.S., uh, you're, you're likely to hear um, them talk about we're in this existential threat of terrorism today and uh, really kind of uh, almost hysterically overhyping the threat of terrorism. Uh, forgetting entirely, entirely that we have a huge history of terrorism in our country uh, that we have uh, made it through pretty successfully. Yeah, and, it, and this this role of history it's, and this international role of history really comes through in the case studies you, you've picked, uh, looking at the Peruvian case study of the Shining Path, looking at the Red Army faction in Germany, India's responses to terrorism in Kashmir, and, and other examples like this. And you, the... The role of looking at international case studies is highlighted in uh, the final piece um, that, that you've put forward for today's chat. It's a, a co-authored piece that you did with Annette Edler, um, which is Behavioural Patterns Amongst Violent Non-State Actors, a Study of Complementary Governance. 
What was the aim uh, for yourself and Annette in this research? And could you let the listeners know where it fits into the to the previous research trajectory? Because it did build on uh, previous research that had been carried out as well. Uh, well, that's a good question. I um, I did this work with Annette after I had been doing some work in West Africa. I had uh, gone to Nigeria in 2010 and wrote a 100-page report for the Joint Special Operations University about Boko Haram back before they were getting uh, really well-known. Um, and then I, I traveled to several other countries in West Africa and published research on the Lord's Resistance Army and Al-Shabaab and so forth. And I was uh, looking not only at the groups, but the context in which those groups were operating. Um, I was actually just in Algeria last month um, working with a panel of West African law enforcement intelligence agency leaders um, looking at this nexus of crime and terrorism in West Africa. Um, so I was interested in this nexus of crime and terrorism as it applies not only to human behavior, but also the contextual dimensions of it. And uh, in, in the course of my research, I came across some work that Annette Eidler was doing. And she and I uh, shared notes, uh, communicated a lot, and uh, you know, we started working on this piece on violent non-state actors and how they collaborate and at least coexist within a place that we might call a, a zone of contested governance. She had done a lot of field work in, in Ecuador and Colombia and Peru, and we found a lot of similarities. We found there's a lot of similarities in terms of the ways in which these organizations or networks uh, seem to coexist and sometimes collaborate, sometimes not. Uh, we found examples of barter agreements, exchanging drugs for explosives or, or weapons. Um, we found examples of these sub subcontract relationships that are based on unique specialized capabilities in some cases. Um, sometimes there would be tactical alliances between networks based on short-term uh, kind of a response to perceived mutual threat maybe. Um, but uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the, the things that we found uh, similar across both those regional contexts was this idea about the transactional supply chain relationships, um, often based on territor territorial control by, by each group. Um, and that seemed to be common across her uh, area of focus and my area of focus. So we kind of wrote up uh, a piece which looks at those, uh, those questions of um, you know, what contexts provide for violent non-state actors to collaborate or at least coexist and also what policies uh, might a government put in place that could uh, maybe constrain or prevent those kinds of collaborations. Uh, and conversely, what, what kinds of decisions do government makes which unfortunately allow for or even incentivize collaboration and coexistence between these violent and state actors. And so that was kind of the area of research we, we embarked upon. And it really emphasizes here in this piece um, that, the, that when we're looking at this, we can't just look at one non-state actor in isolation. We need to understand that overall context and understand the role of the state itself. And what role does does it play when we have an anomaly weak state in place? Does that facilitate, uh, provide that, that context uh, for these uh, violent non-state actors to survive and to be able to profit a lot more? And um, how does how do we internationally uh, look to alleviate that? That well, it's funny you should mention that. At the, at the time that I started looking at that question, um, I'd been reading some uh, research and reports about this uh, failed state kind of question. There was a lot of focus uh, at the time about the the failed state being uh, very attractive to terrorist and organized crime. What I found instead was that terrorists and organized crime groups tend not to like failed states. They prefer weak states that have some level of infrastructure, some level of interconnectedness to the global uh, transportation and information networks and so forth, because that enables their operations to, to go forward. In a failed state, uh, it's a lot harder for them to get anything done. It's a lot harder for them to actually have uh, any kind of... Uh, uh, transactions or security, operational security, and so forth. Uh, so, that, you know, that, that was kind of a surprise to me. I started looking at that area, the weak state, as opposed to the failed state. Uh, and from that led me to, okay, well, what makes a state weak? Uh, you know, is it, um, just, is it just corruption um, and lack of law enforcement, rule of law? It's just sort of multiple dimensions that I started uncovering in my own uh, analysis of that question. Uh, and then... You know, as I got further into the study of 
how organizations, networks, and individuals behave in weak states, uh, some of it kind of made intuitive sense. It was like, well, of course they're going to turn to a shadow economy to put food on their table if there's no other opportunities for them to have a decent income or a job or you know some level of uh, resources to provide for their family or for themselves. Um, so yeah, there's there's economic dimensions to this. There are rule of law dimensions. There are you know, physical security, human security dimensions, um, resource exploitation dimensions. Um, for example, in, in some African countries, as we know, there's a history of of exploiting the natural resources uh, by, in some cases, by uh, corrupt government officials, um, or in some cases, uh, colonial uh, colonial governments started that process, and then uh, private corporations came in and continued that process of exploitation of prior resources. So you have a concentration of um, of resources in the hands of very few, uh, and uh, you you end up with a, a kind of a context in which the aspirations for a better life are not uh, met with uh, enough opportunities for a better life in the formal sector, economic sector or, or whatnot, and individuals turn to, um, you know, in that kind of weak environment, they turn to alternative means, and that's an enabler for organized crime and, in some cases, even terrorism. And is this what you saw when you were in Nigeria and looking at the 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 origins and rise of Boko Haram were these the conditions that you that you witnessed there, or was it something different? Well, Nigeria is a fascinating case study. Um, there's multiple dimensions behind the rise of Boko Haram. There's the religious dimension, of course, but there's also a tribal and clan dimension, uh, the Kanuri tribe. There's the uh, ethnic dimension, the House of Falani versus the Igbo, uh, Yoruba. Um, there's uh, pastoral farming and agricultural land disputes dimension, um, water scarcity, job scarcity. I mean, this kind of goes on and on. And on top of that, you have a history of military coups and uh, political corruption at the highest level, economic corruption, uh, resource exploitation in Nigeria, where uh, oil, mainly from the Niger Delta, um, has funded uh, not necessarily development across Nigeria as a country, uh, but it's, it's provided for development in certain uh, parts of Nigeria, and other parts have been ignored. Um, educational systems, economic systems, and so forth, especially in the north of Nigeria, uh, are uh, the worst among the entire country. And so you, know, you look at the, the country of Nigeria and uh, these multiple dimensions, and you kind of see why Political, you don't, you don't want to rationalize political violence, but you can kind of see um, you know, why the conditions are ripe for a political violent movement to emerge. And how has it changed since you were there? Do you see that, um, that the state and the international actors are beginning to, to uh, counter, uh, counter Boko Haram effectively, or do you see Boko Haram getting even stronger today? Well, there was a, a period of time there where uh, other countries were offering their assistance to Nigeria, and the Nigerian government didn't want that assistance. Um, that shifted uh, a little bit over time, um, but for the longest time, Nigeria's approach to Boko Haram has been largely military-focused, almost exclusively military-focused. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, that you can only go so far with a military focus in countering terrorism. You also have to incorporate these other dimensions of uh, national power. Uh, so there is uh, some underlying efforts, um, you know, almost ad hoc in a way, by religious leaders, community leaders, and so forth, to address some of the ideological resonance issues of Boko Haram. Why is it that young individuals were drawn to Boko Haram uh, based on the uh, the ideology and the ideas? How are they inspired to join up with Boko Haram? And so trying to tackle that question is something military has no real role to play, um, but non-military uh, individuals and organizations do have a role to play. Um, some of the some of the targets of Boko Haram I noticed back in 2010-11 were clerics who were uh, refuting the ideological and religious uh, attempts of legitimacy uh, by Boko Haram. And they were being targeted by Boko Haram because they saw them as a, as a real threat. And so whether it was uh, an emir or, or so forth within 
their religious establishments, uh, they were being targeted, uh, imams being targeted and so forth by Boko Haram. Um, and that, that really kind of, uh, I think, uh, showcased uh, who they were most worried about or more worried about that kind of aspect of their uh, operations than the military aspects. And do you see, um, I know we didn't uh, plan to talk about Boko Haram, but it's just when you raised uh, about that report that you did, I thought it would be worthwhile for our listeners to just hear a bit of your, a few of your thoughts. Do you see Boko Haram posing a significant international threat or is it uh, more a nationalized threat within Nigeria? I'm thinking of um, their linkages with, with IS more recently. Yeah, they've, they've been largely a, a, a local, regional uh, focus uh, terrorist group. Uh, there's there's very few attacks that they've launched against uh, international, what we call international targets. Um, they did attack the UN building in Abuja, and they also attacked um, uh, you know, a couple other targets that we would consider international. But by and large, they have attacked uh, Nigerian targets almost exclusively. Uh, and there's... You know, there's plenty of international targets that they could have attacked. Um, they haven't attacked like the Hilton or other you know, Western-oriented hotels. They haven't attacked a, a you know, airport. I mean, there's a lot of things that they could have and have not attacked. Um, so I think you know, part of their project is really very domestically oriented or nationally oriented, which is it kind of fits with the model of most terrorism. I mean, most terrorist groups focus on domestic or local, maybe regional issues. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to, you know, we here in the U.S. or even the West tend to view a uh, terrorist threat uh, through the lens of, you know, what can they do to us, what might they do to us, you know, what do they want to do to us. Um, most terrorist groups throughout history have nothing, have wanted nothing to do with us. <laughs> it's yeah. not in their best interest to go out and attack, um, you know, U.S. or even Western Europe. Islamic State's a big difference. Um, Islamic State and before them Al-Qaeda have both been preaching a ideology of think global jihad but act locally yeah. and that's something new it's something that al-qaeda has been promoting for about uh, 15 20 years now and now that islamic state has lost its territory it's it's kind of its basis of, of its perceived legitimacy the territory they once had in iraq and syria they've changed their propaganda where it used to be come here and fight with us protect our little islamic caliphate uh, that that ideology, that, that propaganda has is, is shifted now to the same Al-Qaeda-like think global jihad, act local. And so that's what's kind of led now to attacks, these, these uh, self-starter teams, uh, sometimes they're lone actors, who are inspired by that ideology and are attacking in places like France and Belgium, the UK, here in the US, and so forth. Uh, Boko Haram doesn't really promote that kind of ideology. They might, you know, announce some sort of affiliation or alliance with Islamic State, um, but so far there's really no indication that Boko Haram is out there trying to encourage the Nigerian diaspora in places like the UK or the US to attack uh, us or the UK. Uh, it's just really not in their best interest to do so. Yeah, and you've seen with these, with the rise of IS, with the rise of Al Qaeda as well, that there's been a shift in the way of thinking. I, to pick really shown in the question that I asked you there as well that we're thinking more about international terrorism than what's more likely and what's happening more readily throughout history is that nationalized and localized terrorism as well and sometimes we've uh, we've forgotten to, to to our detriment as well and that's why it's important to bring up those case studies that you have in your in your in your edited volumes as well and as you as you highlighted um with the aptitude for destruction, with the origins of terrorism uh, and other pieces like this. And with that in mind, how, and with your hat on now as uh, editor of one of the most influential journals, Perspectives of Terrorism, or co-editor of it, um, how have you seen, uh, how do you see the strength of terrorism research at the moment? Is it... Is it stagnating, as we've heard from Mark Sageman, or do you, do you have a more positive outlook on it? Well, it's an intriguing question. Um, I would say, first off, I have a more positive outlook. Um, I'm an optimistic uh, person by nature. Uh, I think uh, you have to be optimistic to some degree when you study terrorism and organized crime because you, you spend a lot of time looking at the horrific things that people do to other people. Uh, and you have to kind of maintain a little bit of optimism that things can't always be that bad. 
Um, as a yeah, as co-editor of the, the journal Perspectives on Terrorism, I receive a lot of manuscripts from researchers who want to publish in the journal. Um, some of them bring original research and new data to the discussion. Um, others kind of focus on more the integration of existing research and data. Um, I've seen more researchers looking at the issues of right-wing extremism in the U.S. and Europe. Um, yeah, I fully agree with them. We have to take the threat of those kinds of uh, violent people very seriously, especially here in the U.S. We've seen a, a huge problem with that lately. Um, of course, a majority of manuscripts that I've received over the last several years are focused on terrorism that's motivated by Salafi jihadist ideology, and whether it's you know lone actors or small teams or you know, studies of Islamic State finances, economics targeting. Uh, and there's still a lot of research questions regarding Al-Qaeda and its various affiliates that are represented in different manuscripts I receive as well. Um, and sometimes we'll receive a regionally focused paper looking at Southeast Asia or East Africa or something like that. And sometimes some unique uh, manuscripts. Uh, I've seen uh, also research that's been published in other journals. Uh, I really like the work, for example, that John Horgan has been doing on finding ways to encourage and capitalize on disengagement from terrorism particularly among uh, disenchanted foreign fighters. Um, overall, I'd say the scope of research in terrorism has been expanding um, expanding in depth and breadth for the past two decades. Um, there's still plenty of opportunities, I think, to obtain funding to do research in this area, but not as much as it was in years past. My only concern about the current state of research is that there seems to be a number of loud, relatively ignorant voices who reject the value of this research not based on its value, but based on the fact that the research findings don't support their narrow, bigoted political beliefs. Uh, I find that rather discouraging, and I can only imagine how that might seem even more discouraging to some young scholars just beginning a career in the field of terrorism studies. Uh, I guess it's, it's up to us older folks. We're going to need to make sure we don't let the new generation of scholars lose hope that someday their contributions to this area of study will be recognized and appreciated by policymakers. Yeah, and... And there have always been these loud and ignorant voices that you've talked about, but more recently they've been they've been given a, a greater platform, I suppose, and uh, and it's been it could be to the detriment of research. But as you said, if the if the people who are influential in the area are speaking loud enough and speaking out against it and providing those opportunities for young researchers to continue to contribute and show that there is a path to contribute. Um, that's what needs to be done and there needs to be um, there needs to be though that supportive uh, relationship there that supportive community there to be able to to enhance that and to be able to uh, to allow young researchers to engage in in this in this uh, aspect in this difficult form of research and I, I feel the perspectives on terrorism really does give that by by providing not just an academic journal, but an academic journal that's open to all, that is um, open to all in relation to being able to read the articles, but in also in relation to the authors that, that have been published there as well. And uh, you can see it going from strength to strength in its recent um, uh, impact factor in relation to the Google Scholar citations and everywhere else. It's, uh, it's, it's something that um, I may be speaking biasly because I'm on the editorial board as well, but uh, I think it's 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 something it's it's a great it's got a great um, contribution to make and to continue making. James, uh, thank you so much for um, for speaking with us today. It's been it's been great as always to chat to you. Um, for any of uh, any of you who want to read uh, more in depth about the work that James is referring to, both the work that influenced him as well as the work uh, of his own pieces, uh, go onto our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, where there are links to all those pieces, and um, you'll be able to, to read more in depth about it there. So I'd just like to thank Jamie Murray for editing today's podcast, uh, especially for all those uh, where there were a few Skype droppages, but uh, I'm sure he's done a great job there. And, um, and James, thank you once more. So thank you very much, and goodbye.